Cosse. And he's moving now to a new topic. He's been uh, insisting uh, with them because of some people who've been bothering them. He's been insisting on the fact that if they have Christ, then they have everything. They don't need to add uh, any other uh, strange religion or harsh practices to oppress their body. They have Christ who is all in all. And you can almost uh, hear him taking a breath as he dictates this and saying, uh, therefore, and he goes on to talk about two things. And there are two words in this passage that are opposites that he uses again and again. It's hard to pick out uh, two words when you're listening to the whole passage, uh, but did anybody get them? Two words that are opposites that he keeps using. We sang it in one of the first hymns, all our hope in life and death. Life and death. Two of the most powerful words that we can utter. Life is about birth and beginnings, about living, action, freedom, change, growth. And death is usually seen as the opposite of all of those. Endings, stillness, things that are over and finished, or perhaps sadly, things that are incomplete. But because Jesus lived and died and rose again, both of these words have extra meaning, new meaning for Christians. Jesus lived a life that was whole and free and active, fully alive, open, with no limitations, nothing to bind him, no hang-ups, no baggage, just a fullness of life, human life as it's meant to be. And what is more, Jesus' life transcended death. He died. He was crucified, a terrible way to die. And it seemed to the disciples at the time that that was the end of it all. What had been promised was incomplete. But death could not hold him. Because he was God with us, there is too much life in God for it to end. And God raised him back to life in triumph over death and evil and sin and suffering and meaninglessness. God resurrected him. And that was very hard for the disciples and other of Jesus' followers to grasp hold of because people don't just come back from the dead unless you're watching uh, a medical soapy where uh, someone's heart has stopped and they say, stand back and bring in the paddles, boom. 
But that's not really resurrection. That's just the old life being restarted. But the promise to Christians, to the baptised, is that we are given that kind of life, new life, resurrection life in Christ. And in that reading from Matthew, you see how even after they have met the risen Lord, Matthew tells us that they are there on the mountain and they worshipped him, but some doubted still because it is a very hard idea to come to terms with. Paul says this to the Christians in Colossae. You have died. Well, what on earth does he mean by that? Because he's writing his letter to a community of people who are alive. Otherwise, what's the point in writing the letter? They're going to be listening to his letter being read. He is talking to a group of baptised Christians. They have all been baptised and in that era of the very early church, almost certainly, unless they had come from a place with scarcely any water, they would have been baptised in such a way that they go right under the water, in a river or the pool or a pool uh, or the sea. And going under the water is a symbol of death. It's like going down into the grave, down into the sea, because water, after all, can drown you. It's a symbol of both life, because we can't live without it, and death, because it can drown us. You have died, he says, your old life as unbelievers or pagans, or Jews who didn't know Jesus as the Messiah yet, is over, and your new life is begun. Paul imagines it this way. Their new life is in Christ, and Christ is in God. So the new believing Christian is in God, the source of all life through Christ. So when we baptise someone today, um, we mark that new life with water. And in the time of my ministry, if I could persuade uh, adults or older children to be baptised in a lot of water so that they could go under it and come up again, then I did. So we mark the new life with water and with the sign of the cross, the empty cross, the sign of resurrection, new life. But we don't leave it there because baptism is not an end but a beginning. And in the Anglican Church, although strictly speaking you don't need it for baptism, but we give the person a candle, a lit candle, and the whole congregation says to them, shine as a light in the world 
to the glory of God the Father. That is, and this is what Paul is saying, you're a new person. You have a new life. Now live like it. Put it into practice. Be a person who brings light into the world, not sorrow and darkness. Be a person who makes the world your home, your workplace, where you uh, have your time off. Make those places a better place because you're there, not a worse one. Shine like Jesus. Shining out love and joy and peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generosity into the world around you. And you may recognise that list of virtues as another of Paul's sayings about them being the fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in the believer. And then Paul makes a contrast with a negative. You're alive, so put to death the things that oppose godly type life, that restrict it or damage it, the things that limit and oppose life. And he's quite sneaky, actually, because he gives them two lists. Put to death, therefore, here's that word again, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And you can imagine the uh, Colossians sitting there, uh, nodding their heads, yes, let's have an end to sexual immorality, yep, and impurity, yep, and lust, yep, and evil desires, yep, and greed, which is idolatry. And those of them who were previously um, idol worshippers might have a bit of a surprise at this. They haven't, they've stopped going down to the temple to worship idols, but now Paul is telling them that greed is idolatry. And if you think about it, the things that we tend to lust after or be greedy for are things like power and wealth and fame and, in our society, good looks. And if we're putting power and wealth and fame and good looks on a high pedestal, lusting after them, being greedy after them, then where have we put Jesus? This is a kind of idolatry. But on the whole, they've been nodding their heads as that list has gone along. And now he sneaks another list up on them, which might take them aback. You must also rid yourselves 
of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Don't lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Now, it's very interesting that often Paul here has got two things in two separate lists, but often he mixes them up. And he is making the point that things like anger and rage and malice and slander and lying are just as destructive, just as death-dealing as things like sexual immorality and impurity. They're all serious. And you may have lived in a family or worked in a workplace or even been the member of a club where someone was so full of anger and rage that the slightest thing would set them off and the family members or the other employees or the other members of the club have to walk around on eggshells because something might easily spark off that tirade of anger and wrath. And malice, that feeling of real uh, bitterness towards someone else, really bad intentions towards them in your heart and your mind. I'm a single person and single persons, single people, tend to see marriage a bit through uh, rose-tinted glasses. But I have been horrified at the things I have heard husbands and wives say to each other in malice. And nobody knows better than husbands and wives what the sensitive parts of the other person are. And I have heard them in front of me and other people say things that put them down, belittle them, undermine them, take away their self-confidence, insult them. But Paul is saying, put away, rid yourselves of anger and rage and malice and slander. I've even had the experience in a Christian parish of someone writing to the bishop and complaining about things that I had done that I had never done, slander. And when it's other Christians doing it, it is really destructive. Don't lie to each other. That takes away trust and undermines relationship. Put off all these things and put on the new self. 
At that time, most Christians were not only baptised in a fair amount of water. There are exceptions to that. Uh, you may remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who uh, is met by um, Philip as he's going down the road from Jerusalem. Uh, they uncovered that road. It's still there and it is paved still and it has a long stretch like this and then a drop because there's, you can only go down from Jerusalem. So the chariot would go along and then go thump and along and thump. And it, the chariot has to go slowly, which is how Philip can catch up with it and hear the guy reading from Isaiah. And after they talk in the chariot, uh, the Ethiopian wants to be baptised. And so Philip baptises him. But there's no water along that road unless it's been raining and there might be some puddles. So most people were baptised underwater, but the Ethiopian in a puddle. And most people at that time were not only baptised in lots of water, they were baptised naked, both adults and babies. The idea was that you came to a pool or the river or the sea, you came in your oldest clothes, your car maintenance clothes or your gardening clothes or your scrubbing the floor clothes, and you took them off on the edge of the river or the pool or the sea, went in, were baptised, came up again, dried yourself off, presumably, and put on new clothes. And that is the image that Paul is speaking to them about. And they have almost certainly gone through this experience. So it's very powerful to them. And you can imagine that's a very powerful experience, coming in your oldest clothes, taking them off and putting new clothes on. It's an experience they will never forget. How could you? And so Paul is saying, put off all the old stuff, the way that you took off your oldest and dirtiest clothes and be baptised and put on the new stuff. Now that you've been baptised, leave the old clothes behind, put on the new ones. We've actually got a picture of a baptism like this. Uh, you can see the guy being baptised. You can see that he's naked. Uh, the artist has made a discreet uh, wave there. Though when Helen and I were looking at pictures of early Christian baptisms, many of them were not discreet at all. And they were on the walls of their churches. This, this one, this picture comes from Egypt. Uh, and I'm not sure if that was on a wall of, the of a church, but a lot of them were. And both Helen and I went, oh, <laughs> okay. Um, the artist has put some angels on the side to show that something holy is happening here. And 
not sure whether these other people are waiting to be baptised or have just been baptised and have got a towel around them. So, put off the old, put on the new. And then Paul says to them one more thing. On top of all those things, put on love, which binds them all together in unity. And one of the common practices in the very early church was not only would you put new clean clothes on, but that you would put on a robe over the top, um, a white one. And it seems that that's what Paul has in mind. Over all of those over all of those good virtues of loving and kindness and gentleness and bearing with each other, which is a polite way of saying put up with each other. So we have in the church to put up with each other uh, when people irritate us and annoy us. On top of all of those good things, put on love, which binds all those virtues together. That white robe, by the way, probably you didn't have to buy one every time. The church probably had a couple somewhere because lots of the earliest Christians were slaves and therefore poor. Um, it'll come to me. <laughs> so then... Not only do you have new people, people who have been given new life by Christ, but you also have a new community when those people gather together. A community in which, as Paul says, there are neither slaves nor free, Scythians, nor barbarians, circumcised or uncircumcised, any of those things, Jew nor Greek. It is a community where the old distinctions and the old barriers are broken down. In one of his other epistles, Paul actually adds male and female to that list, uh, but not here in this one. And if you wonder about who barbarians and Scythians are, uh, they loathed each other. The barbarians were the peasant farmers and the Scythians were a group of warriors. They didn't have a settled home. They just went on raids and were as destructive as they come. Everybody feared them, particularly the barbarians, the small peasant farmers who wouldn't have any way of defending themselves against the Scythians. In the church, there is no distinction between barbarian and Scythian as new people they have forgiven each other 
and the barriers have broken down. This is the new life, the new clothes. And in this new community of life, there are no more divisions and distinctions. There is love that binds all the virtues together. Amen.